Welcome to another episode of the SaaS Podcast. I'm your host, Omar Khan, and this is the show where I interview proven founders and industry experts who share their stories, strategies, and insights to help you build, launch, and grow your SaaS business. In this episode, I talk to Alex Thuma, founder of SaaStock, which organizes global conferences that bring together SaaS founders, executives, and investors. Alex had been working in sales for many years, but he longed to start his own business and work for himself. But he didn't have any great business ideas. He was interested in what was happening in the SaaS space, so he started writing a blog about what he was learning, and he also launched a podcast. As he started to build a following, he realized that there was an opportunity to connect people. So he organized meetups in London for people interested in SaaS. He really enjoyed connecting people, but he still wasn't making any money. Several people told Alex that he should do a conference to bring together SaaS people from across Europe. At first, he was reluctant, but eventually decided to jump in and do what people were asking him for. Although it wasn't smooth sailing, he did manage to get 700 people to attend the first event, which was in Dublin. And that's when he realized that he'd found his business idea. In the next four years, he ran SaaS stock events around the world every year and grew attendance to 4,000 people. But then the global pandemic hit and the event business he'd worked so hard to build came to a standstill. He had a simple choice, go out of business or find a way to pivot. He had to do some hard thinking and make some tough decisions. In this interview, you'll learn how Alex has reinvented his business, what he's doing to rebuild, and why he's optimistic about the future of in-person events. Now, I've tried to make this podcast a virus-free place. There are plenty of other places you can hear about all that stuff, but it's hard to tell this story without talking about the pandemic. So I hope you'll forgive me. Enjoy the show. There's a world where your CRM is powerful, easily configured, and deeply intuitive. Atio makes that a reality. Atio is built specifically for the next generation of companies. It syncs with your data sources, easily configures to their unique structures, and works for any go-to-market motion from self-serve to sales-led. Atio automatically enriches your contacts, syncs your emails and calendar, gives you powerful reports, and lets you quickly build Zapier-style automations. The next generation of companies deserve more than an inflexible, one-size-fits-all CRM. Join 11 Labs, Replicate, Modal, and more, and scale your startup to the next level. Get your free account at atio.com. That's A-T-T-I-O dot com. Hey there, SaaS founders. Are you looking to grow your B2B SaaS business to the first million in annual recurring revenue? I've got something that can help you. Introducing the SaaS Club newsletter, your weekly source of proven strategies, practical insights, and exclusive interviews with successful B2B SaaS founders who have been in your shoes and are ready to share what they've learned. Each week, you'll get a quick five-minute read delivered straight to your inbox, full of growth tactics, lessons learned, and insider tips to help you tackle those early stage challenges and grow your business to seven figures and beyond. So what are you waiting for? Head over over to sasclub.io slash newsletter and join over 4,000 other SaaS founders and entrepreneurs who are already using these insights to grow their businesses. Subscribe to the SaaS Club newsletter today and get the support you need to keep moving forward on your SaaS journey. Alex, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. 
So this is something that we have been talking about doing, I think, for quite a while. So uh... yeah, maybe two years or so, maybe. <laughs> well, good to have you here. So um, I-, I like to ask my guests if they have a favorite quote, something that inspires or motivates them or gets them out of bed. Do you have something you can share with us? I do. They're both from the same person. So uh, I-, I have two, but one because one is topical and the other one is just one, I think, that has been a, a favorite quote for a number of years. So they're both from uh, Winston Churchill. The one that I like and have kind of you know reflected on over the years is uh, fear is a reaction. Courage is a decision. And uh, I've definitely tried to live by that in many ways and and make, you know, decisions and be courageous in decisions that we've made both in in business and in in personal life. Um, And then the other one, which is a bit more topical, uh, you know, over the last few months is uh, never waste a good crisis. (laughs) And uh, we've obviously been going through a a few uh, crises, I think, sort of like globally. And yeah, I think there's always opportunity, you know, within that. And yeah, like for, for us, it's been an interesting time and we, we can uh, touch on that later. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I know this has been an extremely challenging time for you and the nature of the business that you run. So I think there's going to be some really interesting stuff that we'll be able to share with, with the audience. For people who aren't familiar, can you just give us a quick summary of SaaS stock? What is it? Who's it for? And, and what's the, the main problem that you're, you're helping to solve? Yeah, yeah. So our mission is to really make a real difference to the lives and companies of, of the SaaS community. And how we've been doing it, certainly, you know, to date, is by running conferences, creating content and building community. We've been doing that. Uh, this is our fifth year of doing that. And uh, yes, yeah, so the first conference was in 2016. It was the first conference in Europe for B2B SaaS companies. I, I started a blog maybe 12 months or less uh, before that first event, the blog and followed by a podcast, the SaaS Revolution show, then followed by some SaaS meetups. And so I, I was I was involved in content and community building. And all of a sudden, I had a bit of a community, I had an audience, and I was really kind of passionate about doing this full time. But I, I was actually selling software at the time for a, a large Russian enterprise software company. And I was trying to figure out how do I monetize this? What is the the opportunity? And you know, I tried paid advertising, and you know, there wasn't enough uh, of an audience there. And you know, I looked at sponsorship, and it wasn't really uh, sort of working. And and then uh, events and conferences was the the kind of the third opportunity, third revenue stream. And I was a bit reticent initially because I'd never done events, never done conferences, and so why would I? quit my job and go all in on something where, you know, I hadn't really done before. But I, I did do that, but not, you know, too, too foolhardy. I, I, I did spend a, a good period of time doing customer development, and I had spent about 12 months building an audience right, uh, as well. So we did that, went from the first conference, 700 people in, in Dublin in 2016, right through to last year, we had just under 4,000 attendees in Dublin, and we ran four other conferences across the globe. Uh, we had a conference actually in five continents. So uh, one in the US, one in Latam, one in Asia, one in Australia, and obviously one in Europe. It always feels like, to me anyway, that Sastock has been around for much longer than 2016. That doesn't seem that far away. Yeah, it's not. And it, it does feel like a lifetime sometimes. But uh, 
And then, but then sometimes it also feels like year one, right? Uh, I guess it depends on the day, right? But, uh, but yeah, we, we've been around for uh, longer than it feels. What inspired you to start the blog? Yeah, good question. I, I think, like, to be honest, I mean, I had 11, 12-year career in sales and selling other people's products and uh, through cloud computing, you know, IT services, uh, you know, enterprise software. And I always felt I was entrepreneurial and always had the entrepreneurial ideas, but never really the drive to act on them. And uh, when I, you know, uh, entered into my 30s, I was kind of reflecting on that. And again, like I haven't done anything entrepreneurial. And will I be selling other people's software for the rest of my life? And then when I'm 50, you know, working at IBM or HP and selling, you know, other people's software. And again, nothing wrong with that. Um, but, you know, for me at the time, I thought that's not my calling. And I really want to make this entrepreneurial thing work. But I, I just didn't really have a clue, to, to be fair, what it would be. So I just thought, well, look, I'll, I'll experiment with a few things and testing things out. And I, I, I just thought that I, I had a, a passion or, or certainly an interest, maybe more than a passion at that time in, in SaaS and seeing all these new call apps and platforms and companies come about. You know, I, I thought the likes of Twilio and Evernote and Box and Slack and so on were, were, were sexy and interesting and making software, you know, really interesting uh, and that was that consumerization of software. And I was working for this old clunky enterprise software company where you had to deploy on-prem and spend about a million pounds on hardware and 12 months to implement. And by that, that time, it's out of date. And so I was really drawn to this new world of the cloud. So I thought, I'm going to write a blog on SaaS. I looked in the market. I didn't really see like a, a blog that was not a vendor blog, you, you know, so not selling any, uh, somebody else's software that wasn't a blog from a VC that was really either, you know, uh, trying to elevate their, their VC brand and their, their portfolio companies. So I thought there was a gap there for a bit of a neutral opinion, a neutral voice. And I started Sascribe.com uh, at the time. And uh, the thing is, I think there's a couple of limitations to that idea was one that having never written a blog before, I actually wasn't the, the world's greatest writer um, not that you have to be really to kind of start a blog, right? I mean, I guess that comes with uh, with experience. So I wasn't the best writer, but also I wasn't also the most knowledgeable on SaaS, certainly, you know, back then. So if you're not a great writer and you don't know, you know, you know, a huge amount much about the topic, and, and, and you're like, well, how is that going to succeed? But I, th- I think to my credit, I, I recognize the limitations. So I, I still held the idea in high regard, but I had these limitations. So how do I solve them? Oh, what I'll do is I'll reach out to a bunch of influencers that actually do know what they're talking about and do know how to write uh, content on customer success and on sales and, and so on. And I'll say, like, here's my idea, and, and it, it's it's a blog. It's it, you know we're creating content for the SaaS community, and it's going to be by the SaaS community. And and what I didn't realize what I was doing was they kind of bought into the why, and they, to my surprise, said yes, and they gave up their time. They created original content for this nascent blog with no traffic, you know, initially. And it sort of built from there. And because of these people being influencers already, I kind of, I guess, piggybacked off their network when they would promote that they've done this, you know, written this content for Sascribe. And we grew in the first sort of three months to like 30,000 visitors, you know, per month. Wow. Uh, and, uh, and it was kind of a big hit. And then we had all these companies kind of reaching out to me saying, oh, we, we love what you're doing and so on. So, yeah, so, so I guess that was a kind of, a good idea kind of initially and we were putting out five pieces of content a week at one point and so I was spending and this was like it, 
like I say, a side hustle. It was a hobby at the time. So I was supposed to be doing this in the evening. But because I was working from home, I found myself like working a lot on Sascribe because I was really into it and kind of managing my job, you know, in between and, and doing just enough to kind of keep the job, which uh, after a while you, you could, was reflected in, in my results at work. But that's another story. So, um, so yeah, I, I just kind of I became obsessed with Sascribe and then getting on the podcast. And I found myself like within doing that initial kind of blog post or the initial kind of idea and launching that first sort of post. A few months later, you know, I, I'm interviewing Mark Reberge, who was the CRO of HubSpot at the time, and Owen McCabe and Byron Dieter and Jason Lemkin and others. And, and you know, just in my bedroom with, with a, you know, sort of a young man with a passion around SaaS that suddenly, you know, the idea kind of uh, really, I, I think it, it struck a chord, you know, with the community at the time. So the timing was quite good, I would say. And the initial results were, were, were quite good. So... Tell me about how the first event came about, because you mentioned earlier that you started thinking about how to monetize the blog, and there was no kind of master plan here, right? It wasn't about, I'm doing this to get to running these events. That was one of the things that you just sort of tried along the way, and and it sort of clicked. But what led to that first event? and like, why was that something you were sort of motivated to do? Because from everything I've heard about running events, they can be a real nightmare, right? This is not for the faint of heart. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. How, how did that happen? And, and what sort of attracted you to doing that? Yeah, yeah, no, good question. I mean, there wasn't an attraction certainly to do events, and I, I, I've never wanted to do events in my in my life. But, but I've enjoyed, you know, some events and uh, attended some horrible ones as well. But yeah, you, you know, obviously, I had this community that had sort of like developed, and I had this drive to be, you, you know, a, a big part of of building this community. So after the blog and the podcast, I started doing these meetups in, in London and the first one attracted 120 people. And they came from all over the UK, actually. And there was a real passion amongst these people. They really wanted to learn. They loved being together. They were all starting up at great new and exciting businesses. And it was just, it was a really nice vibe, you know, that, that kind of first meetup. And everybody was so grateful and thankful. And it's like, wow, like finally, we have a SaaS meetup in the UK, not only the first one in London, but in the UK. And it's taken somebody that's not running a SaaS business, but is, is you know, kind of at the center of a, you know, a SaaS blog and a podcast to do this. And, and, and after running a few of these, there was this often recurring conversation. Alex, why don't you start a conference in Europe? Why don't you start a conference in Europe? You're the person to do it. You're building a SaaS empire, which I often I used to sort of laugh at. And <laughs> But I was looking for that that way to to really do something entrepreneurial, to do something that mattered. And it was staring at me in, in the face, right? And everybody was saying to me, look, you know, we want to come together, have an annual event, you know, a larger scale than these meetups and bring everybody together you know, across Europe. And I'd done about eight meetups at this point, you know, several in London, flew to Dublin to do a couple, went to Berlin to do one. And I was like, yeah, look, you know, I'm kind of ready to do this. People are, there's so much demand for it, like I'm going to do it, right? And I want to do it. And because I, I want to be an entrepreneur so bad and this thing is staring at me in the face, it doesn't matter whether it was events or something else, right? You, you know, that was the time for me to really kind of 
you know, kick on with the, perhaps the first time that everything came together, you know, the idea, the drive, the, I guess, like, yeah, just kind of like the, the whole kind of the, the passion and everything to kind of go ahead and do it. So the stars were aligned and, uh, and I went for it. And, and as you said, then what I didn't realize is obviously then actually how difficult events are, uh, not only to get the people there, but then, you know, running it and just like all of the, the, the nightmares that, that sort of come with it. So, uh, yeah, and the, the years of, uh, of stress subsequently having run, I don't know how many now, but yeah, it's not for the faint of heart. And, and often actually you see quite a lot of high turnover in this industry, right? Again, because like it, it's not for everybody. People start out and then they're like, no, this is not for me. And you see like, you know, some companies and conference businesses where actually like every two years they're kind of, you know, they're changing over the management teams and their personnel because that's kind of like, you know, after two years, like a lot of people can be, you know, a little bit burnt out, to be honest. So the meetups, were you charging for uh, people to attend those or was the just a free thing? Free, yeah, free thing. I was doing it in the evenings, you know, of my own back. And again, like no money like involved. It was like, and, and again, I'm, you know, try to think back about the first meetup. I think, you know, when I was doing that, there was no grand plan for, for the conference, certainly initially, right? It, it was kind of through the meetups. When I started to meet the community, the people that were reading the newsletter and reading the blog, when I was starting to meet them face to face, those conversations led into them saying, like, why don't you do this? Why don't you build this event? And me then thinking about it and getting the the cogs kind of turning around that idea and thinking, well, this is maybe a path for me to actually, you know, start my my business, you know, start earning revenue. So, yeah, uh, did it for free. Did it for you know the, the the passion of it and kind of experience and yeah that that was the kind of the the, the start of the you know this community building and then uh, led to the conference. So 2016 was the first Sastock in Dublin. Yeah, good location. Yeah, and yeah. I think you, you said about yeah, about 700 people turned up. How did you get those people there? Was that all through the audience that you'd built, or did you have to go out and start actually marketing? and finding new people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it, it was a bit of both, right? I mean, in terms of the the tickets went on sale in mid-January of 2016, and the event was in September 2016. And on the day of, you know, opening up the tickets, and I, I was, you know, trying to deploy, or I did deploy, you know, kind of like FOMO and scarcity tactics and like, you know, which is kind of often typical in, in events and saying, look, you know, these tickets, there's so much demand, they're going to sell out, you know, on day one and, and so on. And so, but I was experienced. <laughs> but I, I, as soon as we press sort of, you know, tickets live, you know, you can purchase now and send out that email, you know, that very first day, like we sold about, I want to say like 37 tickets and I think it was equated to maybe something like, you know, 13,000 euros in revenue. And I was very happy and very excited. And I was like, wow, you know, like, this is it. We're on our way, <laughs> you know. And when I say we, like, at the time, it was one and a half people uh, at Sasok. So it was me. Uh, and we had um, somebody who was, uh, who was consulting for me at the time. And, yeah, I thought, well, well, you know, this is it. But all of those 37 people that bought the tickets – they were the people that, you know, are subscribed to the newsletter, obviously, the ones that came to the meetups, the ones that when I spoke to them said they would buy a ticket if if you did the conference. So I was kind of doing this, you, you know, I maybe I did know at the time it was customer development. So I bought the book, The Mum Test, and, you know, I was you know having these conversations. 
but yeah, the, the, those uh, you know, the early evangelists or the people that you know bought the tickets and put their money where the mouth was was the people that I've been speaking to for a number of uh, a number of months. Okay, so great. So you got the thirty-seven tickets, but yeah, probably still a long way away from getting to that seven hundred number. Yeah, then what? So that was that in January, and then so after that initial high, then you sort of realise that initial spike. You you know, it kind of slowed. You, you know, to one a day, if that. You know, you you've still got nine months to kind of go, but but it was very what I what I found out what I was doing on the job a very kind of spiky revenue business, but it was often the strategies deployed in terms of selling tickets, you, you effectively, and what is commonly sort of used is you have your kind of early bird pricing, your uh, like regular bird pricing, and then your late bird pricing. So how do you attract people to buy tickets to your event from such a long way out, from either 12 months or nine months out? You give them a, a, an attractive price, which expires at a certain time, right? So we would always see these peaks of maybe 100 tickets or, or might be sold, you know, at the end of the super early bird sale. And then, you know, it's very quiet then for a month, right? And then you get another peak of the, the, the kind of the next sale. So that as a strategy worked. My email list wasn't really big enough. We sort of like crunched the data to really drive from a conversion perspective, the 700 attendees. So actually what I think really, really worked in, in our favor was the kind of decision Early on, and I, I, I've been doing a lot of research, you know, on, on how these works. And I was speaking to people in the industry. Uh, and those are a real uh, help for me at the time. Was a guy called Paul Campbell who runs um, a ticketing platform called Tito, and I, I pick his brains a lot. And you know, kind of explained how to recruit speakers. And part of that is you say, like, this is the event. Here's the why, where it is, like location. People like the locations, all right? In Dublin, you know, was one. Here's who else is speaking. So people like to kind of see who else is there. So one of the things I kind of learned from that is, look, look, if I early on get some really good speakers, there should be this kind of almost, I'll say, like viral effect. But um, people can see who's speaking and say, yeah, I want to join. I recognize these people. And uh, it's this sort of like a bit of social proof there. So having also done and not gone into this cold, Having, you know, spent 12 months or whatever on creating content and doing the podcast, that enabled me to, when I emailed, you know, Des Trainer at Intercom or Christoph Jans, you know, the managing partner of Point on Capital, they, whilst we'd never spoken, they knew, they oh, we've seen Alex Thuma somewhere. Oh, yeah, like he's the guy that does the podcast or, or, or the blog, right? And, oh, yeah, like what he's trying to do, we like that. And obviously... They're invested in SaaS, uh, in the SaaS industry being successful. If it's successful, they're successful. So they want to, you, you know, I guess, kind of back somebody that's trying to make a, you know, a difference and, and trying to help out, you know, within the SaaS industry. So having like gone for some high names, big names, in, in my opinion, you know, early on and, and got those committed and showcased them on the website, and then I could reference them in the email, then enabled me to attract further really quality, in my opinion, you know, speakers for a first time event, you know, we, we get a lot of feedback, but hey, the speakers you've got for the first time event are, you, you know, are, are incredible. And they all, you know, kind of backed it, they all promoted it. And there, there, there was almost like, I say, like, a benefit from word of mouth, a viral kind of network effect, that I would say, like, I, I reckon at least like 50% of the attendees of the 700 were driven, you know, from the speakers that we had from the speakers, having conversations, you know, promoting the event. 
the other 50 percent you know from our email list so so for us that really that really worked but it was like it, it was a long slog for for you know nine months where like every day you know i was you know sending out emails i was creating content i was you know doing all the social media and all the stuff that you like until 11 o'clock at night and you know you know there was a lot of quantity and having never done it before i was you know throwing stuff at the wall and seeing if it would stick um and you know some of it did some of it didn't so i was just doing everything and anything that i could so there was a lot of grit in there you know a lot of uh, i hate to use sort of the word hustle but it was just a lot of hard work a long slog i focused on the sales and marketing and then we we got a company like a third-party company to come in just do the production and logistics of the event you know on the day as well to kind of take that strain away from us because by the time of that first event we were then three people and we'd nearly you know run out of money of money a couple of times Again, just because of the, I guess, kind of managing cash flow. I mean, that that was the the, the challenge, like the, the the spikiness of the revenue coming into the business, and managing cash flow. There were moments where it's like end of March, you know, where we're going to zero in the bank account. Oh, then I managed to close a couple of deals in on sponsorship, and you know, the last day of the month, and then you know everything's saved and we're fine again. You know, so the first event we generated three hundred and fifty k sterling in revenue. But we actually lost, uh, one of my big mistakes was we actually lost probably about 60, 70K in revenue. So if if you saw me on the day of the event, you know, I didn't look super well uh, or happy because I didn't really sleep very well the the night before (laughs) with the final realization that I wasn't going to generate 70K of sales on the last day to, to cover that gap. And um, yeah, so why did you lose that money? What, what was the reason? The, the reason was I, uh, I mean, poor budgeting, not knowing what the costs were. So, like initially, when you know we set the pricing, you, you know, some of the sponsorship pricing that I'd sold, I hadn't factored in to what the costs were. So I'd actually lost money on some of the on some of the partnership deals. I'd also lost money because I sort of didn't realize. So I, I wasn't explicit when selling the partnership package, and I don't know whether the, the partners, you know, took advantage of that or not, that what you got was the the opportunity, you know, to speak, to have a booth, right, and, and so on. But the booths themselves and the ones that we we bought cost several thousands to build. And, buy, and, and in some cases, because we weren't explicit, that that was additional and that the partners should take this on. Like I, I had conversations where I had to pay for, for for some of these, right? Because I'd made this mistake in the partnership deck, and you know, and a couple of months before the event was really when I started to get this visibility from the production company on the costs of the the event, on on, on all of this stuff that we needed for it to run. And I also went for I always kind of also chose the most expensive option rather than the least expensive option because I, I was I wanted it to be look great and look fantastic, but it didn't need to look as good. Uh, as it did, and everybody said on the on, on the day as well. Those that came, you know, from from all over the world, they were like, "Well, this is much better than we expected, and this looks much better than a, a first time event." And you must have spent a lot of money on it, and you know that 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 was all true. I spent too much money on it, and you, you know, so <laughs> I think there was just that financial management, knowing the costs, and having set the pricing kind of earlier on, and done a lot of the sales before we knew what the costs were, and I knew what the costs were, kind of then led to us trying to scramble to generate this additional revenue because you know 350k for your first event it's not bad but the amount of money that i spent and the the inexperience in managing that was obviously you know not good enough so how did you get 
people like Des and Christoph to come to the event. I think you said like they weren't involved with the blog or anything like that before, right? These were people that you didn't know. And it's like, hey, I'm doing this event. It's a first time thing. Haven't done it before. You, you might not say it, pitch it that way, but that's kind of how, they're probably how they're seeing that. Like, did they say yes right away? I would think almost yes. I think like I knew, for instance, that Christoph was on my email list. He was on my newsletter because, and this was pre-GDPR, because I added him, right? <laughs> and um, and so I was emailing him, and he, I knew that he would get it. And uh, look, I mean, the guy is—he's um, you know investing in SaaS companies. He wants SaaS to be successful because he's going to find more SaaS companies to to invest in. So if I approach him and, and say, uh, well, look, obviously, you know who I am because I've been spamming you or emailing you, you, you know, over the last kind of 12 months and uh, you haven't unsubscribed. And look, I'm going to build this SaaS conference, right? And it's going to be the first one in Europe. And here's the vision and here's the plan. And he's saying, yeah, look, you know, I'll be a part of it, right? And uh, so I, I, I think he could see that, you know, I, I was somebody that had been putting in, you know, some effort and it wasn't somebody that hadn't been writing a blog or, or like creating a community blog, hadn't been interviewing all these people on the podcast uh, and then just come to them cold and say, hey, do you want to speak at my conference because I want to earn a load of money off the back of, of, of your content? I, I think they could see that, you know, this is somebody that's actually trying to like build community in Europe, in SaaS, and that would be great. And also that would benefit the SaaS industry and it would benefit our portfolio companies and it would benefit our own company. So yeah, why why not, right? And I mean, for Des as well, you know, the conference was in Dublin. You know, I said, look, you know, you only have to pop out the office for for an hour to to come and speak. So it was kind of convenient. I think if it, if it was in Paris or in Madrid, I'm sure he would have said no, right? Not because he didn't doesn't like the cities, but because it, it's just you know a harder kind of ask. But having said that, you you know, if we if we look back at the speakers, you know, we had Nikos from Workable flew from Boston. You know, we had um, Chris from Chargebee, you know, he flew from Chennai to speak and, you know, uh, Christoph from Germany and, and so on. So a lot of people, you know, came from the US and all over to speak at this first time event. But they, after we got those initial speakers, they could see, you know, uh, that this would be, I think, a quality event really based on the fact that the speakers were showing quality. And I think it's often true. Like if, if you've got a great speaker lineup, that, that should lead to some form of success and give some form of confidence that these people know what they're doing and speaking about. So, so yeah. And so even though you lost a fair amount of money, it sounds like you got the bug for doing events, but we'll talk about other types of bugs in a while, but certainly for doing events and, you know, you, you sort of have grown SaaS stock into at one point you were doing what, like five events a year around the world, 4,000 odd attendees. So what what happened next after Dublin? Yeah, so uh, after that, the, the Dublin event in 2016, you know what I did? I was like, what's next, right? I mean, first of all, what's next? I need to recover the losses. You, you know, how are we going to do that? Well, continue. The plan was to continue selling, you know, for the next event. I, I kind of put my finger in the air and, and said, well, Let's do 1,500 attendees next year. Let's double the size. Uh, you know, somebody said it was crazy to kind of, you know, uh, do the same thing twice, you know, especially if you made a mistake. But I didn't necessarily feel, yes, I made a mistake on the finances, but the event itself 
was clearly, you know, a su- success and we got great feedback from, from everybody that was there on the day and, a- and afterwards. So I had that motivation to continue to do it again and double in size. And 2017, just saw one event. Um, uh, and then 2018, we doubled in size again. But it's still, we were just doing one event per year. And part of the trouble with doing one event per year, uh, not only do you have a lot of time to kind of spend on, on you know, on, on marketing one event and perhaps too much time and spending time on all that detail but it is spiky on the on, on the cash flow right so you know you're not selling tickets all year round right so that revenue disappears you know for a long periods and then sponsorships are a bit more consistent but it's not recurring revenue so the idea was then you know to to create you know events throughout the year and also uh, so a bit more spaced out so there was a bit more sort of you know consistency around revenue coming in and from different events and then also the idea and we didn't necessarily have to do this but my idea was well why don't we you know have a you know cookie cutter the dublin model and you know it's in europe but it is a global event but why don't we put it in the us and why don't we put it in latam and asia and australia and uh, and start small and scale that up and again that's what we did and in retrospect could have been uh, another mistake just in respect of doing it all in one go, all in one year, and without having all of the the processes and you know systems within the business to really uh, execute it properly. So what we've found uh, that growth sucks cash. It's pretty well known that's the case, and with us, that growth uh, and investment into all of these other events uh, started to mean that you know all of a sudden you know I'm paying out for venue deposits in the US and then the next day I've got to pay out, you know, another 50K for another like venue deposit, you know, in Asia and not having the right processes in terms of payments and procurement kind of meant that there was sort of periods where I was paying out a lot of money, but actually, you know, not getting a, a, a lot of money back into the business. And again, that kind of really affected sort of cash flow with, with the business. And, and I think also not having the right systems and processes in place to do, you know, five events meant that it was much harder work, like for us uh, to to actually make them a success. And um, in markets where we weren't known, where we didn't necessarily have a brand, and that kind of stretched the team a little bit and affected probably, you know, culture. And you know, a few people may have, you know, you know, suffered like burnout and stuff like that. So we weren't quite ready for this expansion and doing it in one big bang. What would have been perhaps better? is enter one market, you know, at a time, you know, uh, maybe whether it's one per year or two per year, but, and also getting all the processes right as well. So that was definitely challenging doing a global expansion when we we weren't really ready. We just had the idea and just kind of went for it, but uh, it, it really kind of stretched the business. Whilst we did, we, we grew in revenue, we were less profitable in that time. So one of the advantages I guess you had was Sastock was like first to market in Europe in, in terms of SaaS events. And there was probably an overdue opportunity there that needed to be addressed. But once you started moving into other markets like the US, where there were already other sort of events going on, SaaS events, how did you figure out how to how to differentiate SaaS stock from other sort of events that people could choose from? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, good question. So specifically, I mean, like in Europe, we're already cemented as the the leading SaaS conference in Europe. Again, having had that advantage of being first and being there for a couple of years on our own, 
that kind of helped and being a quality event, right? So Saskock in Europe was was pretty established, right? But even though we were only a couple, couple of years old at that point, going into the US where there was an existing, you know, very large, you know, competitor, again, like, you know, okay, so what is the goal there? You know, is the goal to be number one in North America? And like, the answer was no. Is the goal to be the biggest SAS conference? No. You know, how will we, if there is a, a huge, uh, you know, competitor in that market, you know, why would people come to, to Sastock, right? And actually, kind of what I thought, I mean, Sastock, we've always had this kind of like family community sort of like vibe like at our conferences. Our conferences have always been like, you know, okay, 4,000, you know, people is pretty big, right? But some of our other events are, you know, much smaller uh, scale. And when I looked at it, we had a, a player in the, in the US that has like 15,000 people uh, attend their conference. It's in San Jose. And actually, when it was like very small, and when it was in San Francisco, uh, that was when I I used to attend and when I enjoyed it the most. And when a lot of people that I knew, when they used to go there, you know, they liked it when it was in uh, San Francisco, and when it was 1000 2000 people. And my thoughts were, well, look, you know, we were entering the US, you, you know, we don't want to be the biggest, but now there's an opportunity because there isn't a SAS conference in San Francisco that that we could you know go to San Francisco and you know provide an opportunity for a smaller event that many people like those that don't like the big events is a smaller uh, event. Uh, here's also an event that's not just focused on unicorns and you know having you know twenty unicorns on, on stage uh, who are exceptional entrepreneurs and exceptional companies, but so far ahead of actually who the audience is. You know, and typically the audience, like for us, and and even you know some of these competitor events, are companies that you know they're starting up, or they're between ten and fifty people, or they're trying to get to the first million in revenue, but then they've got you know the CEO of Viva, who's you know six point five billion in revenue or, or valuation or whatever, you know, giving some great advice. But again, how is that applicable to 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 me now? Some of it is, some of it isn't. So with us, we took a different approach to content. In that you you know we're looking at getting on speakers who are often that just a few steps ahead, maybe even at you know the same level uh, as the audience, and a lot of that content to really be very tactical uh, and that people can go away and really apply it to their businesses and really kind of no matter what stage that they're at. So we focused on this kind of you know being a smaller you know alternative, being an alternative that that's not really all about sort of unicorns and uh, you know bringing in a bit of you know whether you're bootstrapped or, or funded, having something really kind of for, for, for everyone in, in that respect. So that was the kind of key in, in the US. And, and like outside of the US, uh, again, where we massively differentiate from, I think, anybody else out there, is the fact that we have a, a, a global like viewpoint. And we the people that we get to speak at our flagship event in Dublin come from Brazil, come from the US, come from India, come from Australia, fly from Australia to speak at our event. And then they're like SAS, I believe, is truly global now, especially, you know, never more so. But, you know, some of the, the kind of competitor events are very US centric, right? And, and, and like, look, I mean, all of the, the unicorn kind of speakers, many of them, they're all based, you know, in Silicon Valley, uh, uh, many of them are. Uh, so it's easy for them to go and speak at the events which are kind of nearest to them. But there's often the feeling, and I have the feeling that it's quite US kind of like centric kind of viewpoint and content, uh, whereas, We'll have at our flagship event a global viewpoint, and then we have a more regional LATAM focused event or an Asia focused event or an Australia focused event as we did in the past. 
So bringing in that that kind of content, which is more applicable to certainly to our, our audience and you know the, the regional uh, audiences, and, and and I think that's how we uh, we see ourselves sort of uh, as different from those that are in the market. So from starting a a blog part time in 2015 to within five years running multiple events around the world, having thousands of attendees, things sort of really clicked and you found, you know, the business that you'd been looking for all that time. And then earlier this year, we had a little virus that started disrupting things around the world. How did that affect you and and the SaaS stock events? Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, um, massively uh, affected us, right? We entered the year with these big plans, you know, with a great team, you know, with 24 people in the company. We had a great kickoff, spent a whole month, you, you know, on forecasting budgets, like but more planning than I'd ever done in, in, in previous years. And um, we went out the blocks, uh, you, you know, in, in January with a record month and uh, thought, like, you know, it's going to be a great year. Um, and things started to slow down in February because we started to see, you know, the, the, this pandemic sweeping across the world and the, a bit of uncertainty around the, the markets. And then in March, uh, certainly the, there was one week in March where I saw like 150 conferences cancelled in, in one week. And it was like a domino effect. And that makes you take note. Right? And uh, initially I thought, well, hey, look, our, our first event is in May. And then our next one in San Francisco is in June. And then our flagship's in October. So maybe this will all be over by May and we'll be able to do this. And then that was only a, a thought for about a week. And what we were seeing was obviously that, um, you, you know, we, we had a, a pretty big pipeline of, of, of revenue for that quarter and for March, but the revenue actually went to zero, right? And we had a, a team of 24, you know, bit, pretty big overheads and zero revenue. And that zero revenue, you know, I felt obviously would continue unless we did something, right? And I had a momentary thought. I mean, you spoke about, you know, this, you know five years of from blog to building this global events business um, and a multi-million dollar, you know, events business. And there was a momentary thought that I had, which was like, well, what if a global pandemic is the thing that's going to wipe us out, right? And it was literally only a momentary thought because I was like, well, you know, I'm not going to allow that to happen. What do we need to do? So I kind of, you know, mapped out the ideas that we had, you know, some of them new, some of them that we had on the shelf about how we could pivot, how we could start to generate revenue again, how we could, it was not only about revenue, again, how we could deliver value to our customers and how could we deliver that the fastest and how can we do that online because we can't do that in person. So we, we had a little war room meeting. We had seven ideas. Uh, after the meeting, we kind of whistled them down to really what is the one that we can do the best, the fastest, fastest time to revenue, fastest time to value, uh, and it was by pivoting to online events, right? We decided we'd do that. We worked in a sprint methodology within that decision to two weeks later. You know, we had uh, the name SAS.remote uh, sort of ready. We had the website ready, initial branding ready. We had the first sales deck uh, for sponsorships ready and all the pricing ready. And we went out to market. Here's the new product by SASDOC. And then uh, we got a lot of early interest and then, yeah, I mean, that, this was still the, the peak of the pandemic, certainly in Europe. And we saw that a lot of companies, just because of the, the uncertainty, weren't willing to commit. A lot of companies 
uh, we're just not so sure about online events, a lot of marketing budgets slash. So it wasn't the best time to be selling. But we, you know, we found a way to, within two weeks of selling, we started to get our first revenue in. And then that doubled, you know, the next month and tripled, you know, the, the month after. And there was a, there was actually, uh, in the end, like a, a really great kind of reception for, for SaaS.remote Remote as a value proposition. We even pivoted the, the proposition, you know, after our, our kind of pivot in terms of it being a bit more targeted, you know, to, to the times in terms of initially we took our in-person conference and our template for our in-person conference and just put that as an online event. But what we sort of realized was actually, you, you know, on, on reflection, looking at what was happening in the market, that the content for Sastra Remote couldn't really be about our typical, you know, traction, growth, scale, but actually it had to be more about what, what people were going through. Uh, and, and we chose the three pillars of adapt, survive and thrive. And everything was focused around that. And so it was like the most topical conference that we would put on. Uh, certainly to date, but that really resonated well by changing that value proposition. That was one month after we'd launched. So yeah, we had a, a period of one month in all of no revenue. Uh, and again, that hurts the cash flow a little bit when you, when you have pretty big overheads. But we were able to come together. You know, we were all working remotely at this time. The team really galvanized behind this pivot, behind the idea. Everybody works really well, worked on the right priorities. We implemented daily huddles at that time. And we had the communication flow going uh, correctly, everybody being aligned on what the goal was. We had one goal, it was, you know, SaaS.remote, sharing the revenues, the transparency around everything, the importance of, of it. And, and people got behind it. And um, yeah, uh, it, it, we, we had the event two weeks ago. It was a success. We had 2,700 people at the event. It was over two days. Uh, it was very global. Again, uh, like being online, it kind of opens up to a new audience. We generated a lot of new business. We, we a lot of new customers with this event. So we partnered with the likes of Front and Reich and Wakato and Zoom Info for, for the first time, uh, which was great uh, as well. So, um, so yeah, a lot of learnings from that. But we we pivoted at a difficult time, and um, we've got through that. A lot of learnings from that event, and and now for the rest of the year, we have three more online conferences, one in LATAM, our SAS.20 online and our Asia Pack one. Uh, and we will refine those events based on our first event and the learnings and the feedback from that. Yeah, what I liked about what you've done with SAS Talk Remote was that when some people say online events, it's kind of like, yeah, we're just going to get on Zoom or something. And you and the team sort of took the whole idea of what is that event experience like and then how can we map that online? So, you know, for example, the idea of a virtual exhibition floor, I thought that was pretty cool. And so do you think this is the way it's going to be now? Or do you feel that this is a temporary thing and then in-person events will return, you know, I don't know, next year or something? Yeah, uh, yeah good question. And funnily enough, I mean, I mean just before this podcast, I was running a roundtable at an online event at Collision, and the, the the topic was the future of online events, and we were obviously uh, sort of discussing this. <laughs> now it seemed, and actually the, the the feedback from that is that most people prefer in person. Most people will believe that it will actually be a, a hybrid approach moving forward. We will adopt a hybrid approach. So for this year, we are 100% online because we we don't believe that we can bring back an in person event at scale 
you know, that can be safe. And we, we don't know if a second wave is coming. We know that I think, you know, many of these uh, corporations, like if you're a Microsoft or a Salesforce, are you going to be sending your, your teams, your employees, employees, you know, to a conference, to a trade show, which could be, you know, a hotbed of, you know, coronavirus, right? And you, you're not going to do that. And, um, and we don't blame them. So we've made that decision where we're online only. We've seen some events like Web Summit who are planning on doing an in-person and online hybrid in December. So it'll be interesting to see how that pans out because that's a, a pretty huge event. Uh, but next year, we will likely do hybrid. So SaaS.remote will, even though it's, it's a new product, but it will rem- remain like a, a global online event for us. It is possible that our uh, LATAM and our Asia Pack and North America events and our regional ones, we may only do those online now. It will you know, save us a lot from having to fly across the world and you know, take so much kind of time out of the business to run these events and recover from you know, all of this travel and, and so on and so forth and the huge cost involved in doing those events with low profit margins, which it typically is you know, if, it's a, if it's a smaller event. But online events are much more profitable. And so for, as a business owner, it it's, it's, you know, has many kind of attractions. So I think we'll do that. But our flagship event in Dublin, you know, it, it's loved by many, including myself. And um, you know, we've got a lot of people that are very keen to kind of go back to that event and very upset that it's not happening this year. And as I say, we have a community and people that are keep coming back year over year and have been there four years in a row. And we, we really want that to happen in October 2021. You know, it's all booked in. We just have to see, like, we can't really predict what's happening in the world now, you know, and, the, and we can't forecast uh, really that far ahead. But uh, I do hope that comes back. But so that's our perspective. But I think there's a massive future for online events. And even the, the platform that we use, which is Hopin, Today, just before this call, I saw that they've just raised the 40 million Series A from Insight Venture Partners and Salesforce Ventures. Uh, so they clearly believe, you know, what we believe, that there is a future in online events. I agree with you. I think the online events and remote is is here to stay, but people are going to crave interaction and meeting in person and whatever you know we don't know how long this this sort of covid-19 situation is going to go on for but it will end at some point and you know it never rains forever and um i think people will really need to get out there and start spending time with each other and face to face again so we should we should wrap up here um you know i think i sort of i i think it's it's really interesting what, you, what you've done with SaaS stock. And there were sort of some takeaways here that I'd sort of noted down as we were talking that I think are useful, not just for anyone who wants, you know, is sort of an events business, but sort of thinking back to the, the audience and, and, and sort of SaaS founders. Number one was like, you know, the importance of you just got started. Like a lot of the times we get hung up with this, certainly with new entrepreneurs, you've got this idea of this business and how to build that thing from day one. And, and you started with the blog and then the podcast came and then the meetups and eventually it sort of led to this events business. But the important thing was to get started with something. The second thing for me was like how you used influencers to to help you get leverage and momentum, whether it was asking people to write for the blog or getting the right types of people to turn up at the events. And whilst even while you hadn't figured out 
how you're going to make money, the idea of number three was really just about still continue to find ways to add value like you were doing with the meetups, even though you were charging for those. It was, again, moving you towards this thing that you didn't know what it was, but it was getting you closer and, and you were getting time with the right people and, and starting to understand what was going on. And then I guess, I guess, you know, you're a sales guy, right? So you're not afraid to ask people. And, and sometimes we don't do that because we might hear no, but you asked and, uh, you know, a lot of people agreed, agreed to write for the blog, agreed to turn up at events. And, and, you know, that's pretty impressive because I think, you know, I remember at some point, I think it was either Des or Ewan from Intercom. I tried to get them on my show, which was probably like in the first year of my podcast. And I couldn't get either of them on the show. So I was impressed because probably around the same time, maybe a little after, like you, you had Des actually turning up to an event. So uh, good on you. So let's just move on to the lightning round. I'm going to ask you uh, seven quick fire questions. So uh, just answer them as quickly as you can. You ready? Yep. Okay. What's the best piece of business advice you've ever received? Probably, and again, this is topical right now, is probably double down on what you're good at um, and don't get distracted by like pet projects. What book would you recommend to our audience and why? Probably your audience, I would say Traction by Gino Wickman. And if they're a little bit kind of later stage, Scaling Up by Vern Harnish. What's one attribute or characteristic in your mind of a successful entrepreneur? I think resilience and even tenacity, but certainly resilience. So if, you, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you need to be resilient. And uh, uh, you, if you've read Shoe Dog, Phil Knight's story, you'll, you'll see that. What's your favorite personal productivity tool or habit? So it's not a, well, I guess it's a tool, but it's not software. So I have a, a full focus planner, which is a, like the Michael Hyatt full focus planner, but it's like a, almost like a, a diary, a planner diary. So each day at 5.30, I write down what I'm doing the next day, my top three things that I'm doing the next day, and then everything else. And so that kind of helps me focus in terms of what that is that I'm doing. And also uh, helps me like a little bit sort of decompartmentalize from work. So once I've done that, and then in the evening, I, I, my brain is a little bit free, you know, from work, and then I can turn up the next day, open the plan and say, this is what I'm doing. Uh, and it won't have like affected my sleep, I won't wake up in the night thinking about work. And that's really helped. What's a new or crazy business idea you'd love to pursue if you had the extra time? My own TV channel. <laughs> that doesn't sound so crazy, you know. What's an interesting or fun fact about you that most people don't know? My first job, I was desperate to work at McDonald's, my first job when I was 16. And I was probably the guy, I can't remember his name, who did supersize me. Uh, but I, I, I probably had that idea before him. But instead of doing it, eating McDonald's for 30 days, I think I ate McDonald's for two years. Um, and uh, <laughs> that wasn't uh, very healthy. But uh, put on a bit of weight, I have to say. Uh, and finally, what's one of your most important passions outside of your work? Yeah, I mean... I'm, Obviously, one is obviously my kids, but cooking. I would say, like, I, I love cooking, and then I probably annoy my the only people that follow me really on Instagram are my colleagues, and then they're just seeing me cooking all weekend and, and po posting pictures of what I think is uh, some quite nice food. Awesome, Alex. Thank you for joining me. I'm glad we finally got a chance to get you on the show and chat. If people want to find out more about SaaS stock, they can go to sasstock.com com and dot remote and uh, i'll include links to those uh, in the show notes they can check you out at the sas revolution podcast and uh, if people want to get in touch with you what's the best way for them to do that 
anybody can email me if, if you have any questions at alexasastock.com or you, uh, follow me on Twitter at, at Alex Thuma and uh, we can have a conversation there. Love it. Thank you, my friend. Enjoy the, the heat wave that you're having in England right now. And I wish you the best of success with continuing to, to build this, this remote, Sastock remote. And uh, hopefully uh, a day when uh, we can sit down in person at the next uh, live in-person Sastock event, wherever that happens to be. Yeah, no, no, definitely. would love to, to have you at, uh, at an online or offline SaaS stock event and, and really appreciate uh, uh, being on the podcast and, and speaking to your, uh, your community. Thanks a lot. All the best. Cheers. Cheers. There's a world where your CRM is powerful, easily configured, and deeply intuitive. Atio makes that a reality. Atio is built specifically for the next generation of companies. It syncs with your data sources, easily configures to their unique structures, and works for any go-to-market motion from self-serve to sales-led. Atio automatically enriches your contacts, syncs your emails and calendar, gives you powerful reports, and lets you quickly build Zapier-style automations. The next generation of companies deserve more than an inflexible, one-size-fits-all CRM. Join 11 Labs, Replicate, modal, and more, and scale your startup to the next level. Get your free account at atio.com. That's A-T-T-I-O dot com. Hey, are you struggling to grow your SaaS business? Well, you're not alone, but the good news is you don't have to settle for slow growth. The right tools can be a growth game changer, and that's where the SaaS toolkit comes in. This free guide cuts through the noise and shows you the 12 essential types of tools successful SaaS startups have used to get to seven figures and beyond. It gives you specific examples and makes practical recommendations to help you find the perfect growth tools for your needs. So stop feeling stuck. Visit thesastoolkit.com to download your free copy and unlock the growth potential you've been missing. That's the sastoolkit.com.